This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. We are very much at the frontier of technology. A lot of things that we do are strange and wild and are very far away from the clinic uh, because there's a lot of uh, safety and efficacy studies that need to be conducted before we can apply this to, to treat a uh, human condition. But in terms of providing information to understand how the brain works, how the nervous system works, that's what our devices are ready to be used right now. That's Polina Anakiva. She's making breakthroughs in communicating with the cells of the brain and spinal cord using ultra-thin electrodes and even tiny magnetic particles. She and other researchers are using her team's inventions to explore the circuits of the brains of mice. But her ultimate goal is to understand and treat human diseases of the brain like Parkinson's. This is so interesting to be talking with you because your work in and of itself is fascinating, but I have a personal interest in it too, which I'll get to in a minute. But you're contacting the brain in new ways, aren't you? The difference between the way you contact the brain and the way a lot of other people do seems to be that you're more biological. I think the best way to think about it, it's Biology really provides us with an inspiration to match its uh, physical properties in a device. We created devices that are thin and feel like nerves and are starting to have the capabilities that maybe one day become as complex as nerves. The nerve, the neuron seems to be extremely complex when you see all those little things those little arms reaching out to other little arms and able to make so many connections. Do you hope to imitate that someday? So one day, uh, it, of course, we would love to be able to imitate the branching. And at some point, we actually made some um, a little bit of headway towards that branching by using essentially our fiber as a thread inside a 3D printer. One of the things that struck me on your website was the idea that a therapeutic drug, if it's taken in orally or by injection, can have unwanted side effects because the drug acts continuously. It's not timed out to when it's needed or when it's optimal to be used. And it's also not necessarily targeted to the specific part of the body you want to reach whereas you can get right down to the, the cluster of neurons you're interested in, is that right? This is one of the things that we are very interested in uh, in our group, and we use magnetic fields as a way to trigger drug delivery and drug release to particular parts of the brain of other parts of the nervous system. And this is actually um, a, a not a very complicated uh, concept, uh, and I can give you a little bit of an inspiration from um, daily life. Yeah, what, what would that be? Uh, imagine a bowl of soup. <laughs> yes. When the soup is cold, you can see fat 
uh, droplets that are solid and they're typically white and uh, um, and not transparent. And then as you heat up the soup, those droplets become soft and they kind of move around and the soup can get in and out of those droplets. So this is really the concept that we use, except on the nanoscale. And we make those fat droplets really, really tiny on the order of hundreds of nanometers. So like one thousandth of your hair. And inside those uh, tiny fat droplets, we can put magnetic particles together with the drug that we want to deliver. And then those uh, droplets, uh, we call them liposomes, will carry the drug and the particles to the, to the brain region or other part of the body that we're interested in stimulating. And then we can apply magnetic field to the whole um, the whole patient, the whole subject, uh, and then in that magnetic field, our nanoparticles will heat up, and that will make uh, these little fat bubbles soft and um, and permeable, which would release the drug from them. And then when we turn off magnetic field, they freeze back up, and they're solid. And so we can do it multiple times. So now we have this time locked release of the drug. We only release the drug where we want it because we can use uh, magnetic localization, and we can do it when we want it because we can, again use magnetic field to trigger that release. The brain is not damaged by this very light magnetic field that you put it under. Is that right? That's right. So the fields that I'm talking about is, are very tiny. So I'm not worried now about the magnetic field, yeah. <laughs> but I do wonder about the little doodads you put in my brain. Yeah. that are activated by the magnetic field. How, how do, my first reaction is, how do I know they stay where you put them and they don't collect someplace else in some gooey muck that, that messes up the operation of the brain in its normal way? How, 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 how do I know that? All right, so let's break this question uh, down to, to two components. Are the particles themselves um, safe? And the second part, do the particles stay where we put them? Right. So the answer to your first question is that uh, chemically, they're very similar to, to approved MRI contrast agents. So we have pretty good, pretty good confidence that they should be safe. And there is quite a bit of um, literature in animal studies that they're safe. That said, you know, we have not had an opportunity to, let's say, test them in large-scale clinical trial. So, but from their physical properties, they're inert, and we, um, and they're being used for imaging, or similar, very similar chemicals are being used for imaging. So that's one component. The second component: how do we, how do we know that they stay? And that's a really, that's the money question. And from our current research we were surprised to find out that the particles indeed stayed exactly where we put them in the brain or actually in the peripheral uh, organ, in adrenal gland. We conduct similar experiments. We found the particles three months or even six months exactly where we injected them. Do you have to uh, try to prepare against the idea that they may clump up and interfere with the cell's activity? That's right. So that we, we do need to watch out for that. And this is, uh, again, those are all questions that we battle with and grapple with every day in our lab, trying to engineer that surface chemistry of the particle to be able to stay in the body, 
not be um, attacked by the foreign body response, by immune system, at the same time not form massive clumps that would ultimately sort of modify local physiology in very unpredictable ways, but also render those particles not as effective. And we only recently started thinking about thinking harder about how we can engineer those surfaces for a um, for a long time we've been focused on really the um, the core the inorganic material that does the function that is magnetic so that has been a, uh, where our work has gone in the past decade and i see that the the future what future holds for us is really engineering those surfaces It sort of gets me to the personal interest I have in your work because you've, you hold out hope that you'll be able to do this kind of a procedure to re- relieve the effects of Parkinson's. And I have Parkinson's, and I'm not looking forward to an invasive treatment like uh, sticking a needle in my brain and... Uh, and you're, you're, you have a whole other way of looking at it, which sounds much less invasive. But first of all, the probe that you put in to get the material where you want it to go is way thinner than the current probe. Is that right? So there are uh, two technologies in my lab. And the fiber-based technology, our probes, indeed can be used to deliver the um, uh, the therapeutic agent and also perform electrical measurements in the brain at the same time so that we know that we are putting our therapeutic agent in the correct location mm. where the cells are affected. And those probes that are capable of this multifunctional performance, they are very small. They're about as thin as your hair, maybe as thin as a couple of your hairs, which is different from what is currently used in clinic, which is about the size of a bicycle spoke. Oh, so, my God. So this is, uh, <laughs> I didn't know how much I didn't like it. <laughs> so, so we're talking about the difference between a couple of millimeters in diameter, which is um, or one and a half millimeters in diameter. This is what the current uh, deep brain stimulation electrodes are uh, versus a fiber that uh, we would create in our lab, which would have more electrodes and will be able to deliver therapeutics, but will be about as thin as your hair. And I don't mean to diminish the effectiveness or the desirability of deep vein stimulation as it now exists because it is helping a lot of people who have no other help, no other place to turn. But this sounds like it represents an advance that will be welcomed by everyone because it's less invasive and, and you get this feedback from the brain too, right? That that sounds like what you're working on is not only therapeutic, but it also is a new way to explore the brain, to, to find out how the brain works among its various circuits cooperating with one another. Is, is that true? So explore, fundamental exploration of the brain and of the nervous system really is what is a primarily driver of our research. We are very much at the frontier of technology. A lot of things that we do are strange and wild and are very far away from the clinic uh, because there's a lot of 
safety and efficacy studies that need to be conducted before we can apply this to, to treat uh, human condition. But in terms of providing information to understand how the brain works, how the nervous system works, that's what our devices are ready to be used right now. And this is what we're using them for and our colleagues are using them for because we can simultaneously record neural activity, we can stimulate neural activity, we can deliver drugs, we can test potential therapeutics and understand how that alters the local neurobiology, how that alters behavior in moving, behaving subjects. Now, when you say moving subjects, you mean, you mean mice, right? And you can change their behavior? So this, uh, this is an experiment uh, that we have conducted with our magnetic technologies. And this is a fairly well-known phenomenon in neuroscience is that uh, there's a circuits in the midbrain that connect brain regions um, that are governing motivation. And one of those brain regions is called ventral tegmental area and the neurons there produce dopamine. And dopamine has been previously not by us, but by uh, many decades of research from our neuroscience colleagues have been shown to be linked to motivation. We can, I would say, hijack that system using our, uh, our magnetic tools to, mo to artificially stimulate dopamine release in the brain, in mice, uh, and as a result, make them more motivated. And in our case, mice were more motivated to swim. Do they like swimming in the first place or do they avoid it? Uh, mice do not like swimming very much. Uh, as a result, when you put a mouse in a cup of water, normally a mouse would struggle and try to escape from that cup of water. But they also don't drown, unlike people. They actually float. So they realize... So if you do it several times, they actually learn or mm. they become adapted. They don't, they don't need to struggle and eventually you'll take them out. So, but if we take an animal like that, that has adapted to being in a cup of water and knows that it just needs to hang in there for a minute. And if we apply a magnetic field to that animal, all of a sudden they get that boost of dopamine release and that, uh, gives them the motivation to start swimming and trying to escape uh, from that cup of water again. You have a wonderful TED Talk, and I, I think the title is Why You Shouldn't Upload Your Brain to a Computer. <laughs> Basically, why shouldn't we? I mean, everybody sort of sees computer science advancing and there seems to be a trajectory toward which, far in the distance, the two sides of the road converge. Will there be computers as we know them, and will there be brains as we know them? What, what, what do you think about that? Well, the, it's, it depends what we define as a computer. Um, so what we def and what we define as a computer right now is a solid-state device that consists of many, many transistors, that uh, can operate a prescribed algorithm. And now, of course, those systems can learn with all their artificial intelligence. However, they're still operating on the same hardware that consists of many, many, many transistors. And the trick with um, those many, many transistors is that every individual one of them only has three connections. So 
no matter how small and how fast it is, it only talks to other three transistors. Neurons are not nearly as small and not nearly as fast as uh, modern solid state transistors. So modern transistors operate at uh, tens of gigahertz or terahertz. Brain operates in kilohertz at most. So the speeds are very different. Also, neurons are on the micron scale. Transistors are on nanometer scale. So again, neuron looks massive and slow comparing to a transistor. That, but as you said, neuron forms connections with so many neighbors, approximately uh, 6,000 uh, neighbors or so. Uh, while a transistor, again, only talks to its three nearest neighbors. So the, and that gives us a fundamental difference in processing that is serial versus parallel. So let me let me interrupt for a second. The computer, I, I just want to make sure I'm following you. The computer is serial in terms of its connections because it has to accomplish three at a time, whereas the brain can, the neuron can do 6,000 at a time, and therefore it can operate s several functions at the same time. Is that right? It's not serial. It is. I mean, transistor can only has basically two functions, on and off. It is, a, it is a switch. Neuron has essentially infinity states because people thought of neurons as being digital for a long time, but now we realize that they're, they're analog objects. There's Their voltage across their membrane is, um, is a continuum, and on that continuum rely, uh, lie many different states of a neuron that signal, even if the digital signal, like the action potential, comes through a neuron, it can get sent out to, you know, to thousands of other neurons and perform this and trigger multitude of cascades all simultaneously. Those thousands of connections for each neuron build into trillions of connections across the brain. And to start creating this many interconnections on a um, on the chip, you now start to have a lot of wires. And it turns out when you have so many wires, first of all, if you need to start shrinking them. And it turns out it's much easier to shrink the transistor than to shrink the wire. Because once you shrink the wire, the resistance goes up, your currents start to uh, basically heat up your wires, and now you need to do something with that power. So you don't want to boil your chip at the same time. You, you don't, don't want to boil your brain. But if you start sticking those chips in the brain, you're going to need a lot more wires. So there is, um, so to be able to, to mimic that interconnectivity. And of course, there's some really interesting electronics research going on to make those connections uh, more, uh, less resistive, make them go in three dimensions. All of that is ongoing, but we still, the fundamental elements of those uh, chips are still have only three ports. And now when we're thinking about what a human brain can do because of this parallel processing, it's remarkably energy efficient. So our, it is, first of all, it fits into about this volume, uh, the volume of two fists, and it operates on a sandwich. It operates on 20 watts. And operates uh, <laughs> on a sandwich. <laughs> so, or whatever your favorite meal of the day. So right, that's right. Your, uh, a computer that has, that could conceivably have this connectivity uh, as the brain has, 
would pro would require a power plant. So th there is a lot of discussion now going on with uh, that computing is becoming an actual energy crisis mm. because to be able to perform those really sophisticated learning algorithms that operate like brain requires uh, orders of magnitude more energy than what the brain uses. And that's the remarkable thing about that organ. So it sounds like what you're saying is that rather than con continuing to consider the brain like a computer, that we should think of computers in a way that enables us to give them some of the properties of brains. I think both have their, um, both have their place. And I think, yes, if we understand cognition, if we can understand the brain it will inform how we can design computers that are more capable and less energy hungry so for sure and that's uh and neuroscience has a big uh place uh in enabling that at the same time compute computers are even very simple computers that are not very power hungry can do things that are very difficult for a human brain for instance integrals so we um those are not don't come naturally uh, differential equations don't come naturally to human brain. A lot of training is required, and we're still not particularly good at cranking them out in milliseconds without yeah. a piece of paper. Computers, on the other hand, are pretty good at those. So how or do maps? You finding finding a map on Google yeah. Maps. Finding a map on Google. Uh, the it is all of that computer can uh, conducting a really uh, big search across let's say, all neuroscience literature on reward. Computer can pull up all of those uh, thousands and tens of thousands of papers, while for a human user in the library, it would take infinity. And I think I think I, a, a wonderful example was, I think, in your TED Talk, where you said we can find a good restaurant for Thai takeout or just find any restaurant for Thai takeout in seconds using google maps but we go to the human reviews to see if we want to go there that's right um so our there is all there is um human brain is uh this parallel processing is something that is very uh so far has been really challenging to reproduce in a computer and for specific tasks let's say where you know a computer learned how to play chess much better than a human or a computer learned how to play go better than a human it is um was uh, uh those computers are not something that can operate on 20 watts this those mm. computers take mm. rooms those computers take a lot of power and they can only do one thing so you cannot take a computer that is a chess master and also say also by the way fold the laundry and order the takeout and drive this car and not run into anyone. <laughs> so while I'm sure a human chess master that maybe not as good as the computer chess master, but, you know, they're competitive, can easily fold the laundry, easily drive the car and, um, and do avoid maybe, hitting most people. Uh, avoid hitting most people. When we come back from our break, Polina Anakiva tells me why it's the rich diversity of her lab that makes it so creative, and why she loves Marvel superheroes, even using them to teach quantum mechanics.
Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Polina Anakiva. I understand that you were first working in quantum mechanics. Is that right? So my uh, path was um, uh, somewhat uh, unusual. My undergraduate degree was in physics. And then I did my PhD in optoelectronics, working with quantum dots. And uh, some of the technologies that I have developed for light-emitting devices based on quantum dots, which you can now find similar technology in the QLED display by Samsung that you can buy in the store. Uh, so those are the types uh, type of technology that I helped develop. You helped and, develop that while you were doing your, your PhD yes. work? Yeah, that's, that's, you had an immediate practical result. So, uh, and exactly that immediate practicality of that, that's what made me bored. So <laughs> I, the, um, I didn't want to work on, on improving technologies that already existed, making something that, uh, making something better. I wanted to work on something that didn't exist. And I also wanted to work not on the next toy, but on something that can improve human condition. Mm. So biology provided both of those things. It's an endless frontier. The tools, at least 10 years ago in neuroscience, were very primitive, and but the questions were so important. So uh, it was a uh, an easy choice in terms of making that choice, but then the difficult part was finding an adventurous enough uh, person to hire me uh, to work on those problems. And uh, my former advisor, uh, Carl Dyseroth at Stanford, uh, was that adventurous person who allowed me to make that transition from nanotechnology to neuroscience. Was there a cross-pollinization for you between those two fields, or were they vastly different? Intellectually, everything is based on, operates by laws of physics, right? So if you understand how the uh, how to think about the world from fundamental physical principles, it is not so different whether you're solving problems in nanotechnology or neuroscience. And of course, my lab traverses both of those inter- disciplines all the time. On a daily basis, we go all the way from atoms to animal behavior. And mm. that's our... Um, that's how we how we like it. And are you equally brave and uh, courageous about bringing people into your lab with a background that doesn't sound like it fits directly? Uh, yes, we uh, we have a very strange lab uh, where people come from many different disciplines. We have everybody from chemistry, materials, physics, electrical engineering, neuroscience, bioengineering. 
immunology. It is a uh, it is a very chaotic environment. People also speak, I think, about ten different languages on a mm. daily basis. So uh, we believe that this diversity of disciplinary thought and cultural diversity is um, key to doing imaginative work. Do they, in addition to speaking ten literally different languages, do they tend to speak in a way different languages? with regard to the specialty they're more familiar with when they come in? Does that diversity need some communication to, uh, to cross bridges? That is, that is, you bring up an, ex- an excellent point, and this is the point that I would say was probably the b- biggest um, educational opportunity for me when I switched from uh, engineering to neuroscience uh, as a postdoc. So I had to learn to speak the new language and being able to speak both of those languages. Now I can act as an interpreter in the beginning for my new trainees, but they also learn to be, I would say, bilingual in the sense of engineering and biology. Uh, And that allows them to develop these biologically inspired, biologically motivated tools to study interesting questions in the nervous system. And it sounds like you make more progress by bringing in disciplines that have been outside the realm of your own to start with. Almost any discipline, when it's met with a, an outsider, seems to get, it, get stimulated. It, you make different progress. I would say you don't, uh, you can, you see features and patterns that other people may have missed because mm. you're looking at the problem Uh, very differently. Let me switch completely because I've read in, I think on on your website, that with all of the fascinating work that you do in the lab, you wouldn't want to give up teaching. You seem really connected to teaching. And And I saw that you got an award for your work in digital learning. And digital learning has really come to the forefront with the COVID crisis. And at the same time, MIT has been promoting digital learning around the world. Do you have a philosophy or a paradigm that you try to follow to make digital learning as effective as you can? Well, um, I would say that I call myself a reluctant digital teacher. (laughs) Why? uh, All my digital learning uh, or digital teaching uh, projects were really, um, I would say, they happened uh, almost by accident, and uh, uh, I was not. Uh, I never found myself as thinking, "Oh, I really want to do a digital learning project." It just happened, and because of that, because I'm, I'm actually really committed to in-person learning. I love interacting with students. Mm-hmm. That makes me happy. I like to see people. Um, sort of get it and sort of see that change in their eyes when they finally learn something. So I, this is what ultimately drives me as a teacher. So how do you go from that to digital learning? So basically I try to do the same things that I implement in real life to implement them in digital learning. And I also had a lot of help. I had really talented people working with me on those digit, uh, on those, that digital content. 
So the class for which we ended up getting a digital learning award is called Electronic Optical and Magnetic Properties of Materials, which is a code word for um, quantum mechanics and solid state physics for material scientists. That would have been bad enough. What <laughs> it translated into something harder to understand. <laughs> so the um, and so how do you um, take this class and make it uh, fun and exciting and people want to take it online? Uh, so what we do? So you uh, squirt dopamine in their brains, right? Yes, that's right. So in the, uh, unfortunately, my technology is not currently FDA approved. And uh, I don't have enough volunteers to right. receive the implants from my lab and also take the quantum mechanics class. So what uh, we do instead, we created a um, uh, an universe that is more that is nerdy. And MIT is a nerdy place, and I really like superheroes. I'm uh, an avid avid fan of Marvel, uh, and uh, have been using various comic universes in teaching and making uh, sort of using sort of those heroic concepts to teach those really difficult subjects to students and they seem to like it so so how did you use superheroes in your in your program so we write all our exams as superhero stories and so essentially this whole exam is a coherent story with heroes experiencing various trials and tribulations and you need to solve a problem to help your heroes or the heroes are solving them and you're helping them on, on their behalf. And so that's one component. Another component is the comic battle, which is a, uh, instead of having world's most boring review session in the end of the class, we, um, we divide our students into groups and they have to create a superhero comic that covers as many concepts from of, uh, of material that we cover in the class. And then they're being judged by an external committee for that comic and get awesome prizes. So to recapitulate that environment, that sort of heroic, nerdy universe online, we had we worked with a professional artist and all our problem sets I actually designed as comic strips. Mm. Uh, and then all our exams are designed as comic strips. And then um, we're still trying to figure out how to create uh, a comic battle online uh, because we can't, it's hard to team people up and figuring out how we're going to get the comics submitted to us. But this is something that we'd like to do and be able to do it at scale. But um, it all comes down to making it fun for us. And if it's fun for us, then we probably will do a good job teaching and then people will probably like the subject. So if um, that has been my philosophy is that don't do anything boring. <laughs> that's, that's really fascinating. I'm so glad you told me about that. I love it. We're coming to the end of the time we have. Um, we, we end our shows with seven quick questions roughly connected to science. Are you game? Sure. Can you remember the first thing in your life that you were curious about? Yes, mushrooms. I always wondered how mushrooms communicate with each other. Oh, how fascinating. Did you ever try to explore that to see how they do? Not yet. <laughs> what, what made you want to be a scientist? Sci-fi books. I read a million of them, and there was always a biophysicist on a spaceship, and I wanted to be that person. 
what part of your research do you enjoy the most? I love both research directions of my group. And what there's nothing uh, compares to seeing neurons fire when we exert a manipulation. Seeing mm-hmm. neurons fire is like nothing else. Mm-hmm. As a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had? When the first experiment in my new lab at MIT, when I first became a professor, worked. Uh, and that's after I gave up on it working. What, what was the experiment about? The experiment was uh, magnetic stimulation of neurons. Oh, great. So what was your worst moment? The worst moment is, uh, I don't know. I think uh, losing a massive grant that supported most of trainees in my lab was probably the worst moment because I had to figure out how I'm going to pay salaries. And it's very unscientific, but uh, it was just a soul-crushing moment. Mm. It's funny, this question comes after the previous one, and I always tend to think it comes for a reason I didn't really understand when I started listing these questions. After a moment like that, you need confidence to go on. What what gives you confidence? My team. Hmm. Okay, last question, one that interests me a lot. How can we help people, more people, enjoy a love of science? Good teachers. We need very good teachers early. Mm. Uh, The earlier, the better. My first physics class was when I was nine years old. So if everyone would have that kind of opportunity uh, to have access to real science really early, they will fall in love with it. That's great. This has been so interesting talking to you, and I look for How long do you think it's going to be before I come to your lab and have you put these little magnetic things in my head? Um, I don't think you're going to come to my lab. You can come to my lab for other reasons. You can visit us. But you're <laughs> yeah. going to probably come to a much cleaner, much safer environment than my lab. Uh, uh, if all goes well, a decade. Okay. I plan to still be here. That's good. Thank you so much, Polina. Thank you. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Born in Russia, Polina Anakiva did her undergraduate degree at St. Petersburg State Polytechnic University and her Ph.D. at MIT. After she did her postdoc at Stanford, she returned to MIT, where she's now professor of material science and engineering, as well as professor in brain and cognitive sciences at the McGovern Institute for Brain Research. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
On the next Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Carrie Cahoy. She and her team are building mini satellites called CubeSats, and they get launched into space by piggybacking on rockets that are launching much larger satellites. You feel the blast of hot air hit you from the rocket. You see the trail go up. You see the separation. It, it's it's a, quite a feeling to see something that you've worked on get so far away from, from where you're stuck. And then getting the first contact and signal down that lets you know it's working. <laughs> That's the next part. You don't always get that. But if you do, you, you definitely grow an affinity for the satellite, almost like it is your child or, or your dog or cat or something. It's, it's, it's like part of your family and you look forward to seeing it again and hearing from it. To find out how these bread loaf-sized satellites help weather forecasting and even help spotting faraway planets, listen into my conversation with Kerry Cahoy next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.